What's up, Stitches? Howdy, hey, hello. Thank you for joining me today. Can you believe that this is the 10th episode of So What? I feel like I've been doing this forever, but also for like no time at all. Thanks for sticking with me through these first 10 episodes, and hopefully you'll all stick around for many more. Okay, today we'll be looking at a specific group of samplers made by South Indian girls at a missionary school run by an English woman named Caroline Cuffley Gibburn. Remember her name because I'm going to say it a lot. The samplers are wrapped up in British colonialism, so we're going to get deep into that today. And like always, images of the objects I'm discussing and the sources I used are posted on the So What social media accounts at So What Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Without further ado, let's go. So I found out about these samplers after I learned about other colonial samplers, like those made by girls at mission schools in Sierra Leone. Mission schools are somewhat self-explanatory. They were run by missionaries who were hoping to convert students to Christianity through education and religious schooling. The Sierra Leone mission schools were under the same umbrella organization as the South Indian mission schools I'll be looking at today. The organization was called the Church Missionary Society, or CMS. A few years ago, someone named Silke Strickrot, I guess, wrote a really informative article called African Girls Samplers from Mission Schools in Sierra Leone, 1820s to 1840s. That article is about 13 African CMS samplers, but there seems to be no scholarship about their South Indian counterparts. The samplers Strickrot looks at are really decorative and are pretty similar to contemporaneous European examples. The girls who stitched the Sierra Leone samplers were clearly made to go by really British names. There are surviving examples signed by girls named, or renamed rather, Lucy Grant and Charlotte Turner, which were surely not the names they were given at birth. It is a very, uh, yikes situation. But the CMS samplers for mission schools in southern India are really different than the Sierra Leone examples. I'll get into more specifics about that soon, but I should say that I saw these samplers because I wrote a paper during my master's about them. The samplers I'm talking about are in the Church Missionary Society archive in the University of Birmingham's Cadbury Research Library. In the archive, I found this scrapbook filled with letters, drawings, pamphlets, wooden boards with Tamil etchings, and six schoolgirl samplers. These six samplers were made by 19th century South Indian girls taught to embroider in Christian mission schools run by British women. The Church Missionary Society, CMS, was present in South India from 1799 to 1857. And the samplers in the Birmingham archive are kind of right in that time frame. The South Indian CMS samplers are really austere. They contain Bible verses stitched in red thread with no decorative motifs. The samplers are more akin to works made by British children in orphanages than to the brightly colored, intricate samplers typical of contemporaneous British girls living at home. What I argued in the paper during my master's, and what I will also assert today, is that the similarities between Indian samplers and British orphan samplers suggest that the British encouraged Indians to emulate British customs without actually allowing them excessive indulgence or individual creativity, and that suggests that othering, I'm putting some quotes on that because that term is loaded, is present in colonial needlework. That idea of othering seems pretty obvious from my point of view. So much of colonialism was about othering, about making very clear distinctions between us versus them. So of course needlework reflects that. I'll get more into that later, but first, here's some important context. 
Five of the six samplers in this group use red thread exclusively or primarily. They are in a scrapbook called Portraits of Schoolgirls and Other Persons of South India, which was compiled by Caroline Cuffley Gibburn, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. She left Wanstead, Essex for Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, in 1838 under the auspices of the Female Education Society. After running a school in Colombo, Ceylon for four and a half years, Gibbon joined the Church Missionary Society and taught at the Kadachapuram Normal School in Tinnavelli, modern-day Valley. I hope I pronounced that correctly, which is in South India. Caroline got sick and went back to England in 1848 before returning to teach in India from 1852 to 1862. Gibbon was the first person to train South Indian women as teachers, so she perhaps initiated the teaching of a very constrained, simplified form of needlework in that region. It seems that she really, honestly, and very sadly did not hold a high opinion of her students' educability. She wrote, quote, No one must imagine that our Indian women have attained anything in mental or moral requirements to be compared with Europeans. Indeed, it will be many years before they become such as we could wish, end quote. Yikes, yikes, yikes! Please envision me saying yikes forever as I scream into the abyss. This whole thing demonstrates Gibbon's low expectations for her students that mirror the institutional contempt suggested by the aesthetics of the colonial Indian samplers. British colonists tried hard to make Indians less like the heathens they were considered to be, while believing they were always going to be the other. Really hoping you can hear my heavy quotation marks around heathens and other there. Christian education for South Indian girls began in earnest in Tronkabar in Tamil Nadu in 1712, when the first school for girls was opened by German missionaries. While it didn't stay open for long, many of the South Indian girls' Christian schools that succeeded it are still open today. The CMS was founded in London in 1799 by a group of activist evangelical Christians who were committed to the abolition of the slave trade, social reform in Britain, and world evangelization. Even though the group was British in origin, it relied heavily on churches and missionaries throughout Western Europe until the cooperation could no longer happen because all of the European countries were racing to colonize the world. CMS began its work in Tinnevelli in 1820, two decades into the CMS's nearly six decades of service in India. According to a pamphlet titled Progress of Education in India 1897-1902, to Girls' education in India was really rudimentary. For, and I quote here, In the main, when female education in India is spoken of, it connotes primary education, i.e. the teaching of little girls to read and write in the vernacular, to do easy sums and a little needlework. The overwhelming majority of Indian girls who come to school never proceed beyond this stage. End quote. The emphasis on teaching basic skills without attempting to advance Indians mirrored Britain's focus on colonial India as a territorial and economic enterprise. Girls' education in India reflects Edward Said's assertion that, quote, Orientalism was ultimately a political vision of reality whose structure promoted the difference between the familiar, Europe, the West, us, and the strange, the Orient, the East, them, end quote. Oh, yes, we are bringing up Edward Said, the guy who literally wrote the book on Orientalism up in here. We are bringing him here because he deserves to be here. 
Indian girls were taught needlework, but only the basics, leaving intact the distinction between supposedly artistically skilled creative Europeans and the assumedly creatively limited colonized people. I yikes, all of those things, honestly saying we hate to see it does not even begin to cover it. It is a bad, bad time. So that distinction between Indian and European samplers can be seen through the sharply contrasting style, color, and content of South Indian samplers, which all have primarily, as I said before, red thread, they all feature religious text, and they all lack any decoration. While colonial African samplers were stitched entirely in English, the colonial Indian samplers feature a mix of English and Tamil. This is perhaps because the British colonists felt that Indian culture and languages belonging to citizens of the, quote, jewel in the crown of the British Empire deserved some consideration. A guy named James Nicol Ogilvie, who was another British missionary in India, said, quote, Indian civilization, if it had the splendid picturesqueness and many of the arresting features of the civilization of the old world empires was found on closer acquaintance to be marred by the same sad feature that so marred them. The glory and greatness were based on a vast system of human degradation and oppression, end quote. Ogilvy and his fellow missionaries wanted to retain India's glory and greatness, but do away with its system of oppression. Which is so funny, because by trying to do away with India's system of oppression, the British were just creating one of their own. Haha, <laughs> so fun, so fun. The fact that Tamil was embroidered on samplers indicates that the language was valued, or at least considered somewhat valid, by the British missionaries. Okay, there is my whole contextual colonialism is bad monologue. I could talk about this forever, but we should probably get into some of the actual samplers. Okay, the first sampler in the Gibbon scrapbook is of comparable dimensions to British samplers of the same time, longer than it was wide. It features Psalm 90:12, mistakenly labeled as Psalm 91:12. I did have to look that up because I don't know almost anything about Christianity, so sorry. I'm Jewish, and there's a lot to learn about Christianity, so uh, I'm not here trying. The psalm is in both English and an archaic form of Tamil, so outdated that much of it cannot be read by modern Tamil speakers. The second English verse, quote, "'Tis sweet as year by year we lose friends out of sight, by faith to muse how grows in paradise our store," end quote, comes from John Keeble's Christian Year, a series of Christian poems and the source of several popular hymns. The use of popular Christian literature demonstrates that the religious education of girls at these Indian mission schools was not limited to just the Bible, but also included other aspects of Christian culture. The sampler's inscription states that it was made by Sarah, teacher in the Kadachapuram Normal School, Tinavelli, South India, May 1847. According to Gibbon's notes, Sarah was the first girl she trained to become a teacher of Indian girls. This was in response to a practical need, since according to scholar Sita Anantha Raman, quote, the almost total absence of women's teachers dissuaded parents from sending their girls to school, and this perpetuated the vicious cycle of low female literacy rates, few female teachers, and few female students. Missionary women had valiantly come to the fore in addressing this particular need, and girls with the minimum level of literacy acquired from Christian schools frequently went on to teach lower grades themselves, end quote. 
This sampler represents not only the transmission of needlework knowledge from the British to the Indians, but also what the British viewed as a step toward the Christianizing and therefore the civilizing and bettering of Indian girls. In 1847, Gibbon wrote in her journal, quote, When I look back a few years to the time when the normal school was first established and recollect the unruly girls of 15 or 16 years of age whom I had then to break in and see around me now well-behaved girls of the same age, setting the younger ones an example of neatness, obedience, diligence, and order to which their teachers have scarcely attained, I am both surprised and thankful and can only say, what hath God wrought? End quote. For British missionaries, Christianizing and civilizing were intertwined. Gibbon's belief that her students' increasing acceptable manners is God's doing indicates that she invested in the logic that guided British education in India, namely that Christianizing a people equates to civilizing them, and that one sign of civilization is needlework. This is demonstrated in a pamphlet entitled Native Female Education, which Gibbon pasted into her scrapbook. It summarizes a story in which Hindu women send a schoolmistress, quote, flowers and fruits as a token of their goodwill and manifest a great desire to learn needlework. Two young females belonging to respectable families are very regular in coming to her for a lesson on needlework. All this shows that some ground has been gained and the confidence of these people in a measure secured, end quote. So clearly, for Indian women, needlework was a sign of good breeding, but for the British in India, it was a tool through which they could convert people to Christianity. Needlework in this situation is clearly the site of a lot of complicated issues and relationships. Anywho, the second sampler was also made by someone named Sarah, although it's unclear if that was her given name or if that name was anglicized to sound more British. The sampler is much smaller and framed in lace. That lace may have come from Travancore, which was the site of a lace-making industry. Now, I can't figure out if it's the same Sarah who made the first sampler or a different Sarah. As you can see, there's probably been a lot of anglicizing of names in India, too. We know this, we see this, we have thoughts on this. Anyway, back to the sampler. It has Psalm 512 embroidered in both English and archaic Tamil. Its inscription indicates that Sarah finished it in Madras on the 27th of November, 1860. The sampler's small size raises the possibility that the work was made to be sold. Contemporaneous and similarly small samplers made in British schools and orphanages were sometimes turned into pin cushions and sold to raise funds for the schools themselves. But there may just be a simpler explanation, and that is that the sampler is small because it used less material and required less time, energy, and skill to make. The third sampler in this group is similarly small. It's written entirely in Tamil, except for the phrase James, period 5, period 7, period, or as the Brits say, full stops instead of periods. Anyway, that's a verse that encourages readers to, quote, be patient until the Lord's coming, end quote. It has no inscription, but Gibbon's handwritten note on a piece of paper below the sampler states, Kadachapuram Normal Infant Schoolmistress, Sarah, 1848, June. The sampler appears to be a counterpart to Sarah's first sampler, which is the first sampler I just mentioned in this episode. Both of them have similar green borders and, like always, primarily use red thread. It's not clear what Sarah stitched on her sampler besides perhaps a Tamil translation of James 5-7, because any of the Tamil speakers I've asked about this can't interpret the text. Big ol' mystery. 
The May 1847 and the 1848 samplers show that schoolmistresses in India taught embroidering in both English and Tamil. While the 1847 sampler's text is from the Old Testament and the 1848 sampler's text is from the New Testament, both encourage a willingness to suffer in one's moral life in order to benefit from the coming of the Lord and life in heaven. It seems like it was thought that Christianity could help stabilize and pacify a population that might otherwise grow irate at having their lifestyles and customs challenged by imperialist policies and practices. The fourth sampler is the only one that was not from Gibbon's scrapbook, and I'm looking at it for some helpful comparison. It's from Mrs. Baker Center School in Katoyam in the Kingdom of Travancore, completed by Karikadenjakil Elichi on the 28th of February, 1887. It seems that Karikadenjakil did not have her name anglicized, which I feel very cute about. The ground fabric of the sampler is a gauzy linen instead of the plain weave coarse linen of the Gibbon samplers. Although Elichi's work is stitched on finer cloth, it's still made from red thread exclusively and features a mixture of Tamil and English, just as do the samplers from the Kadachapuram Normal School. Unlike the samplers from Kadachapuram, the text, which is the Lord's Prayer written in Tamil, is embroidered in a spiral rather than in horizontal lines, and a tiny flower adorns the sampler's right corner. The deviations from the norms of sampler stitching, or at least deviation from the type of South Indian samplers we've seen so far, indicate that students at Mrs. Baker Center's school were allowed slightly more artistic freedom in their sampler making. We might think that because these South Indian samplers are really austere and are made with red thread, the simple text-heavy stitching style was the only one known and that only red thread was available. But we would be very, very wrong. Another sampler from the scrapbook is a small rectangle of stitching which reads Affection. It's backed with rich purple satin and the stitching, which was likely done by Gibbon herself, aligns more closely with the Berlin wool work that was very popular in Europe and the United States in the mid to late 19th century. Gibbon sews tent stitches and uses multiple thread colors to render shading that makes her text and the decorative scheme more three-dimensional, methods which were common in Berlin wool work. She also uses pink, purple, brown, and two shades of green thread, revealing that a palette of thread colors, not just red, were available in India. The decorative nature of the affection sampler, with its calligraphic text and vine design, shows that Berlin woolwork had made its way to India, but was followed only by the British educators and was not taught to their Indian students. It looks like schoolmistresses in South Indian mission schools must have deliberately chosen to have their students use only red thread and embroider very basic, modest samplers. That ain't cute because it suggests that those educators were basically holding back that knowledge and inhibiting the exchange of skills. The use of a single thread color may have been a reaction to India's sensual culture. According to a scholar named Indrani Sen, there existed a, quote, larger Western construction of Indians, regardless of gender, as a decadent and lascivious people, for whom human happiness consisted solely in sexual pleasures, end quote. The sparseness of colonial Indian samplers, then, may have been intended to work against this supposed excessive sensuality. This moral burden is made clear when that Christian missionary minister dude Ogilvy, who we talked about earlier, says, quote, to care for these multitudes of human derelicts, to lift them up in body and in soul, to breathe into them a new hope, to inspire them with a new ambition, to fit and equip them for a new life. All this is a task for the right accomplishment of which Indians would require to be strengthened tenfold. Bruh, God, so terrible. Ay, 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 ay. 
One small tactic in this clearly very moralistic campaign could have been the use of monochromatic thread. Economically speaking, though, the use of red thread is straight up weird. We might assume that red was used because it was cheap, but again, we would be so wrong. According to scholars Robert Chensener and Maureen Daly Goggin, red thread and yarn were very expensive. It's unclear then why Indian girls used red thread specifically and almost exclusively in their stitchery. It seems most likely that British missionary schoolmistresses provided red thread to emulate samplers made by orphans in Britain, because in Britain, needlework was intended to be an industry for girls. I will get back to that. For the British in India, needlework was an indicator of Christian productivity, but Indians had a different view of how needlework knowledge would change them. They thought it was a sign of good breeding and that gaining such a skill would elevate them in the eyes of the British. Scholar Sita Anantha Raman, who I mentioned before, states, quote, A grand exhibition of needlework by Indian school students was held at a meeting that was viewed by 70 elite Indian members of the Madras Ladies Branch of the NIA, which is the National Indian Association, of whom 50 were upper caste, with the appellation ladies clearly revealing the class of its members, end quote. So for Indian girls and their families, being taught to stitch was a sign of gentility. But did they know that the needlework they were being taught resembled needlework taught to British orphans, some of the most materially and stylistically impoverished stitchery of the mid to late 19th century? We obviously don't know, but it does make interesting fodder for speculation, right? Samplers provide material and visual evidence for the notion that the most privileged Indians were placed on par with some of Britain's least privileged citizens. Like Indian samplers, many contemporaneous British orphan samplers were stitched solely in red and feature text that emphasized the importance of being industrious. Given what I said earlier about red dye being expensive, it's just as weird that British orphan school samplers used red thread as it is for their Indian counterparts. Why red thread? I truly do not know. I also mentioned the importance of industry for British orphan samplers, so here's more on that. One example of a British orphan sampler that emphasized the importance of industriousness is from the Cheltenham Female Orphan Asylum, which includes the inscription, quote, religion is our guide and industry our support, end quote. Although it includes navy thread in addition to red, it's still pretty simple, with most of the stitchery dedicated to text and an alphabet. Industry was so paramount to this school that girls often fundraised by transforming their samplers into pincushions to be sold to the public. The inscription emphasizes that religion and industry, rather than friends, family, or the state, are students' most important sources of guidance and assistance. Given the visual parallels between the samplers in Gibbon's scrapbook and the Cheltenham Female Orphan Asylum, it's clear that British missionaries in India felt that religion would guide the Indians and industry would civilize them. The parallels between Indian and British orphan samplers can be seen in an example made by the orphan L. Matthews. The Matthews sampler, which is at the Met Museum, is small and consists of red thread and coarse linen. It's nearly as austere as the Gibbon samplers, with only an alphabet, numerals, a name, year, and two trees and teapots. It's clear that Gibbon drew more inspiration for how to teach Indian students stitchery from the simplest, bleakest marking samplers than from Berlin woolwork. Was this because she and other British educators did not think Indian girls were talented enough to undertake more complex needlework? It may be so, as that dude Ogilvy writes, quote, In the vast majority of these schools, the education is of an extremely elementary kind, and rightly so, end quote. It was felt that Indian students, only just emerging from the shadows of non-Christianity, were very backward with so much to learn. Again, yikes, huge yikes, gigantic yikes, 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 all around. Bad times and very bad vibes. 
While there are a few examples of samplers from other parts of India, it's clear that they too reflect the well-meaning repression and condescension of British schoolmistresses and missionaries. An example from the Cooper Hewitt Museum is larger and more decorative than the CMS examples, but still uses primarily red thread and greatly resembles British orphan samplers in content. The sampler, as indicated by its inscription which states Krishnagar Girls' School, is from Krishnagar, a region north of Calcutta in modern Bangladesh, some 1,800 miles away from the Tamil region, making it pretty impossible for the two region samplers to have influenced each other in any way. Rather, the Tamil samplers and the Krishnagar example both emulate British orphan samplers. The Krishnagar sampler bears a striking resemblance to Bristol orphanage samplers, of which many survive and are prized for their extreme intricacy and detail. The Bristol orphanage samplers are highly similar. They all have a profusion of alphabets in different fonts and sizes, many bands of decorative patterns, and an inscription including the maker's name, year, and location within the orphanage. Some of them also include small natural and religious motifs, as well as the initials of the maker's friends. Above all, almost every single sampler is made with only red thread. The maker of the Krishnagar sampler, like the makers of the Bristol Orphanage samplers, includes the names of her friends. The listing represents an eclectic mix of typically English names such as Bessie, Sarah, Jane, and Mary, and Indian names such as Mukoda, Somaran, and Harani. I have no idea why some names were anglicized and others not, so if you do happen to have an idea, let me know. Let's have a chat. I would love to speak to you. It's something that I'm sure would be really interesting to look into. Lists of classmates' initials are found on many Bristol samplers, including a sampler in the Fitzwilliam Museum made by Mary Ann Tipper, which I'm putting on the So What social media like everything else. She nestles the initials of her friends S-A-W, A-C, E-A-M, E-T, G-T, B-T, and L-E between lines of Arabic and Roman numerals. In the Krishnagar and Bristol samplers, the lists of names commemorate communities of schoolmates and more specifically, communities of needleworkers. Given the austerity of the Indian school samplers, it's easy to overlook that they were embroidered by girls and young women who had favored activities, hopes, and plans for the future and cherished school friends. The maker of the Krishnagar sampler was presumably a girl named Sotio, which is based on the name stitched on the bottom of the sampler itself. She included in her work both Indian and European imagery. The inclusion of motifs which are not present in the South Indian samplers provides a visual representation of the confluence of Indian and British cultures. Everything coming together. The largest symbol is a geometricized fish. While the origins of this fish design are very unclear to me, it is decidedly not British or European. Also unclear is why the fish is outsized, though this may reflect the stitcher's pride in a design of her own devising. I don't know. The other large symbols, greatly different in style from the fish, are floral and geometric motifs which are large perhaps because as decorative images rather than the embroidered representations of specific objects, they are decor of the sort which would have been more likely to be found on clothing. The remaining motifs combine European inventions with aspects of Indian culture. Sotio juxtaposes a teapot and a steam engine, artifacts of European invention, with a shisha pipe, a walking man, a donkey, and a figure on horseback. While most samplers include motifs such as flowers and animals drawn from pattern books, it's likely that the motifs on this sampler came from images in other printed sources, as pattern books did not include depictions of modern technology or symbolism from outside of Europe. Sotio's sampler is also unexpectedly indicative of just how far embroidered symbols can travel, which is something I talked about in my episode on Central American samplers as well. 
Tucked between the figure on horseback in a flower basket is a small two-tone monkey holding an unidentified object. This figure is actually Dutch in origin and can be found on samplers as far away as Mexico. On Dutch samplers, the monkey is clearly seen spinning yarn, and while its meaning is debated, it's often understood to be a representation of a woman alluding to the principle that women must be constantly kept busy. Ah yes, sexism and misogyny strike again! The spinning monkey and its connotations traversed centuries and continents, from 17th century Holland to 19th century British and Spanish colonial holdings. So although Indian girls were taught an especially abridged form of needlework that adhered to the British colonial program, they still belonged to the centuries-long lineage of stitching women, which we do like to see. Okay, back to Caroline Cuffley Gibbon and her scrapbook. We can only guess at Caroline Gibbon's motives in collecting student samplers rather than allowing her students to actually keep them. It's not possible to determine the precise mixture of Gibbon's pride in her students' work and pride in herself for teaching them. As we've seen, Gibbon was keen to make a difference in India, relying strongly on her morals and largely guided by what she thought her students could and could not achieve. Perhaps she wanted to keep the samplers as material mementos of the difference she made in the country. Modern viewers of Gibbon's scrapbook can evaluate the difference Gibbon made in India only through Gibbon's own records. Her students are thoroughly westernized, with new names and westernized portraiture. Gibbon's students' names were changed either by Gibbon or the girls themselves to European names including Sarah, Anna Maria, Leah, and Elizabeth. The girls' Tamil names are not involved at all. I haven't seen any evidence of them. Gibbon included portraits and descriptions in her scrapbook of her students, including Sarah, who made two samplers in the scrapbook, as I mentioned earlier. The most detailed parts of Gibbon's portraits are her students' faces, which are posed in three-quarter view in the tradition of centuries of European portraiture. Gibbon makes less of an attempt to render her students' native clothing, including just basic outlines of their shapes and folds. Gibbon draws her students' faces with care, but avoids any intricacies of their non-European clothing. Additionally, all text we have about Gibbon's students comes from Gibbon herself. Each portrait is accompanied by a page of handwritten text from Gibbon describing how she improved them, evinced by passages such as, quote, she was at first more vulgar in her ways and habits, end quote. We can know these Indian mission students only through Gibbon, which is obviously so grim. This is part of a larger issue that I think many people who study colonialism come across. So often when one is trying to look at colonial stories and look deeper into those individuals, they can only do so through sources that evince all the cliches of colonial ideology. It is a vicious circle. Schoolgirl samplers over the course of centuries have displayed a combination of structure and individual variation. In Indian samplers, though, the emphasis on a basic structure precludes almost all individuality. Well-meaning missionaries gave Indians limited tools, reflecting the missionaries' own limitations in addressing Indian culture. My summary of this whole thing is that colonialism is a bad, bad time, which we all knew already. It's even a bad time when it's under the guise of Christian brotherhood and education and whatever else. I'm sure that Caroline Cuffley Gibbon was out here thinking she was doing a great thing by going to India and educating these girls. She was very much a conscious actor in the process of colonization. Even if she thought she was doing a great thing, she was still part of a much larger system of British colonialism and all the terrible dehumanizing stuff that came with that.
Now, that's that on colonial Indian samplers. I don't mean to end this episode on a negative note, but colonialism is really present in samplers and in needlework generally, and it's an important thing to talk about. There needs to be an active move towards telling these stories, and in this case specifically, there needs to be more of an effort made to tell tales of these South Indian sampler-making girls. That's on me too. There's a lot more work to be done on this stuff, and I'd really love for anyone interested to join me in this research. There are so many stories to be told and so many lives to be rediscovered. As always, thanks for listening. Please like, rate, subscribe, do whatever else, post on your social media, be my friend, I don't know, whatever. Now go out and work to decolonize the study of textiles. Bye!